You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I remember being in junior high and trying to earn the Presidential Physical Fitness Award. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) All right. The initial version of the presidential physical fitness test goes back about a half century, and it initially included a number of physical challenges that you could try to complete in hopes of getting a certificate recognizing you as being in the top 15% in the nation in terms of physical fitness. Some of the physical tasks included pull-ups, sit-ups, the standing broad jump, the shuttle run, the 50-yard dash, the softball throw, which I think it morphed to the football throw when I got around to taking it, and the 600-yard run. And this was the foundation for the test for many years. Now, at some point, someone added something very random and horrible to the test something called the V-sit or the V-stretch. The V-sit sounds simple enough. You sit down on the floor, you spread your legs apart in the shape of a V, and then you see how far past your feet you can reach. Now, the task was easy enough for many people, but if you're a stocky kid with short arms, this is like a primitive form of torture I remember year after year completing every single task except the cursed V-sit. I desperately wanted that certificate, but I couldn't meet the standard. Friends, sometimes I wonder if we've done something like this with prayer. We formulated an arbitrary and impossible standard for prayer. We've convinced ourselves that for prayer to truly honor God and gain his approval, it has to sound a certain way. It has to include certain words. It's like we're trying to earn a certificate based on totally subjective man-made standards. And in all of this, here's my concern. In all of this, we have lost the beauty and the simplicity of prayer. Now, we, we do know that there are wrong ways to pray. But again, as Aaron so clearly taught us, these prayer failures have far more to do with our hearts than our words. In fact, you can say a lot of right things. Your prayer can sound really good. It could even be theologically impressive. But if your motivation is sinful, then what you are calling prayer is nothing more than empty religious exercise. Look with me again at Matthew chapter 6, and let's go back to verse 5, and let's remember what comes before what we call the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. 
Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus gives two negative examples. One is praying for the applause and adulation of men. The other is merely going through the religious motions. After sharing both of these, Jesus leaves little doubt how his followers should respond. He simply says, do not be like them. Do not be like them. There's an obvious contrast here. Verse 8, do not be like them. Then verse 9, pray then like this. John Stott writes, if the praying of Pharisees was hypocritical and that of pagans mechanical, then the praying of Christians must be real, sincere as opposed to hypocritical, thoughtful as opposed to mechanical. Jesus intends our minds and hearts to be involved in what we're saying. Then prayer is seen in its true light. Listen, not as a meaningless repetition of words, nor as a means to our own glorification, but as true communion with our Heavenly Father. As Jesus puts forth this model prayer, I want to draw your attention to the foundation and the fuel for this kind of prayer. Remember how Jesus has been emphasizing the heart throughout this entire sermon. And remember again how Aaron directed our attention to the role of motivation in the negative examples Jesus gave of prayer. Jesus is not instituting a new ritual. Jesus is not instituting a new ritual, a prayer to be memorized and performed as part of a stale and lifeless liturgy. No, Jesus is giving us a pattern, a pattern for sincere and thoughtful communion with God grounded in unchanging, everlasting truth. But let's start with motivation. If we get the foundation wrong, we'll get everything else wrong. So here it is. The foundation and fuel for prayer is the greatness of God. The foundation and fuel for prayer is the greatness of God. Let me show you in the text where I'm getting this. I want you to see from the end of verse 8 and end of verse 9 how Jesus lays the foundation and offers the motivation for prayer. <clears throat> First, I want you to see the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God in verse 8. Look with me at the text. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I don't want any of you to read the final phrase of verse 8 without stopping to ponder the immensity of the statement made and how it relates to prayer. In this context, Jesus has just offered the example of Gentiles who would heap up empty words in hopes of being heard. These unbelievers had formulated in their convoluted and fallen thinking a false God that needed to be impressed. They had to do something to get his attention. 
And once they had his attention, they could bring their requests before him. Friends, what a pathetic God. And how discouraging this must have been for these people. In contrast, in contrast, Jesus established the glorious truth of God's omniscience. The true God of heaven fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. What a startling difference. You can pray to a false God who you can only hope to impress with incantations and empty phrases. Or through Christ, you can bow before the true God who doesn't simply know all things, but he knows what you need before you even ask. To be honest, this is one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture. I find it profoundly motivating in prayer. God knows me, and he knows what I need. Sometimes one of my kids will come to me, and I can tell by the look on their face what they're about to ask. So before they say a word, I'll say, no. (laughs) Or sometimes, sure, go ahead. You see, I know my children. I have a unique relationship with them. And this is what we see in the text. Yes, God knows all things. He is omniscient. But the emphasis here is actually more specific. For all those who have turned to Christ in faith, it's not simply that God knows all things. It's that God is your heavenly father. And as a perfectly loving father, he knows everything about you. And he cares. Beyond the omniscience of God, I want you to see, secondly, the fatherhood of God. The fatherhood of God. We see the fatherhood of God highlighted in two different places in the span of just two verses. Verse 8 again. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Remember, Jesus' audience is those, those who have already come into the kingdom. Your father knows what you need before you ask. Verse 9, pray then, in light of this, pray like this, our Father in heaven. So I need to be clear, the fatherhood of God is emphasizing the unique relationship that exists between a redeemed sinner and God the Father. There is a way the fatherhood of God can be used more generally. But here we're talking about something more. Something more specific. One theologian describes what I'm saying this way. It is common for New Testament writers to describe the process of becoming a disciple of Jesus in terms of becoming a child of God, a son or daughter of God. Those who repent of their sins and trust Jesus as the one who paid for their sins by dying on their behalf. Those who vow allegiance and obedience to Jesus. Those who confess Jesus is Lord. These are the same ones who are said to be born of God, John 3. Sons of God by adoption, Romans 8. Once headed for wrath, Ephesians 2. Now these people have been made alive before God. They relish the new relationship with God himself. Listen, if God 
by his sovereign grace, has acted upon you, bringing you to repent of your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as your only hope in life and death, if you have made the sincere confession of Jesus Christ as Lord as you heard from those being baptized this morning, if this describes you, then you have been adopted by God and he is your heavenly father. It's interesting that the word for father that we have in view here is the same as Abba in Aramaic. Many of you have heard this described at some point as being similar to us calling our fathers daddy. Now it's true that this This was the everyday way Jewish children would have referred to their fathers, but adults would have used this term as well. So most theologians tell us that it's right for us to understand this term as emphasizing the intimacy of the believer's relationship with God. I think many of you have probably heard that before, and it's correct. But but this must never push aside his sovereignty and authority. In fact, friends, I would argue there is something positively wonderful about understanding God the Father as intimately loving and absolutely sovereign. How glorious to know that God knows what you need and he can do something about it. In the text, we've seen the omniscience of God, the fatherhood of God. Now, notice the immortality of God. The immortality of God. Verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. If we are tempted at all to become too familiar with God, to overemphasize the intimacy of his fatherhood, this would pull us back onto solid biblical ground. Our Father in heaven. This important phrase reminds us that God is exalted and eternal. Heaven is the throne room of the creator. From heaven, God oversees and rules over his creation. Heaven reminds us that God is transcendent and his power is unlimited. Remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. There's a hymn we sing often. And it's a hymn we need to sing often because it reminds us of of what we must never forget. It tells us the truth about God. I remember hearing a clip from Alistair Begg. You should look it up online if you you remember. He talks about going to a worship service and and the worship service uh, began with a worship leader asking the congregation, how does everybody feel this morning? And Alistair Begg, in his Scottish brogue, which I will not try to impersonate, says, how do I feel? How do I feel? I kicked the dog on the way out of the house. I yelled at people in my family. Don't ask me how I feel. Tell me what is true. Tell me what is true. I'm grateful that we have songs that tell us What is true? Songs like this great hymn. Immortal, invisible, 
God only wise. In light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. All the truth of that song and so much more is captured in these two words. Our Father in heaven. The omniscience of God, the fatherhood of God, the immortality of God. Finally, look with me at the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? We don't often hear the word hallowed anymore. The closest we get is Halloween. Halloween comes from two words, hallow and ain or eve, and was originally called all hallows eve. Another way to say it is all saints, Eve. You see, the the word hallow comes from the same root as the word saint, sanctify and holy. When Jesus asked for God's name to be hallowed, he's asking for God's name to be seen as holy and set apart. He wants the whole world to understand that God's name is unique. It's unlike any other name and deserves unique reverence. Jesus is saying the same thing the psalmist did in Psalm 34, verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Isn't it interesting that the first request, the first request in the Lord's Prayer is that all of God will be honored in all the world. All of God will be honored in all the world. It's a prayer that everyone will see and understand that God is matchless. It's a longing for the name of Jesus to be known and prized in all the earth. You see, when Jesus talks about God's name, he's referring to all that God is. His name is shorthand for his character and actions. His name is all he is. Praying for God's name to be revered throughout the whole earth is a way of praising him. Because to pray this, we must believe that his name is worthy of being treated with reverence. You can't pray this in any meaningful way if you don't believe it. You can't pray this unless you actually believe that God is worthy of worldwide worship. In fact, friends, it's very important to note that you can't honestly pray for everyone to hallow or revere God's name if you don't revere his name. The Apostle Peter commanded us by saying, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Before praise reaches our lips, it better make its way into our hearts. And that actually summarizes much of what we've studied in the Sermon on the Mount so far. 
So what fuels our praise and our prayer? It's the greatness of God. It's the greatness of God. And this is precisely where the Lord's Prayer begins. You see, it's, it's when we become overwhelmed with the sovereignty and love and kindness and generosity and transcendence and holiness of God that we lift our hands in praise and we bow our heads in prayer. One old saint put it this way. True prayer, true prayer brings the mind to the immediate contemplation of God's character and holds it there until the believer's soul is properly impressed. That's good. True prayer brings the mind to the immediate contemplation of God's character and holds it there until the believer's soul is properly impressed. God's desire, Redeemer family, is that we would be a people profoundly and endlessly impressed by God. This is the foundation and the fuel for prayer. The more impressed you are, the more motivation you have to pray. Now, in closing, I want to offer you two very brief points of application. First, the omniscience and fatherhood of God invites honesty in prayer. The omniscience and fatherhood of God invites honesty in prayer. Often we're afraid to verbalize what we're struggling most with. We're worried about what will sound like. My suffering, what I'm facing is so insignificant, we tell ourselves. If I tell God what I'm really thinking, it will sound silly. Friend, God already knows everything you're thinking before you even form the words to speak. And guess what? He doesn't think your trials are insignificant. And he doesn't think your requests are silly. He is like the patient and loving father who brings his three-year-old a drink of water in the middle of the night and rubs his back until he falls back asleep. This kind of access this kind of intimacy. Believing friend, God knows you and he loves you. You are free to be honest in prayer. Second, the immortality and holiness of God fosters humility in prayer. Obviously, these two work hand in hand honesty and humility. We must never come before God with a sense of arrogance or flippancy. This is why we bow our heads and we often kneel in prayer. Well, what happens to the prophet Isaiah when he encounters the immortal and holy God? Woe is me, he responds, for I am lost. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, no one, no one who really understands the God of the Bible struts into the throne room. Brothers and sisters, humble yourself in desperate prayer before the God of heaven. The biblical blueprint for prayer is not some arbitrary and impossible standard. It's really quite simple and beautiful. The biblical blueprint for prayer is honest, heartfelt, humble communion with God, fueled by the greatness of God. Let's pray together.